Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, Lies of Learning Loss. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and today I'm joined with special guest, Tara Stamps. Woohoo! What's going on, Tara? Listen, I'm just feeling good, feeling good. Thank you. Dr. Pretty Girl Parker, oh. uh, for letting me sit in uh, for you. I've been kind of waited with bated breath mm-hmm. for this opportunity to uh, come in and, and kick it with you. Nice. And why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit and who what you do here at CTU to the listeners? Not a problem. So I am a veteran Chicago public school teacher. And up until uh, nearly two years ago, it'd be two years in December, Um, I was in front of students as an instructional coach and uh, doing STEM. But prior to that, I was a reading teacher for a lot, a lot of years, primarily at Jenner Elementary School in Cabrini-Green, USA. And now I have the pleasure and privilege of um, curating a program in the CTU space that I've named We Care Virtual Instructional Coach and Building Mentor Program. I know it's a mouthful. It is. Um, and it's a spinoff. It's just our incarnation of the Illinois Virtual Instructional Coach and Building Mentor Program. And so um, that's what I do. So I'm very excited about the work we're able to do to support early career educators in the union space. You know, so not only are we about the business of like developing great educators that we can pass this baton to, but mm-hmm. social justice, there you union go. loving educators who are going to continue this incredible work that we do at CTU. That's really important. I mean, when I first got into the district, there was, there was no mentoring programs. There was no nothing. I was a first-year teacher. I didn't know nothing about nothing. Of course, I thought I knew something about something, but I didn't. And fortunately, you know, this is how I know God loves me. I got put with a, a veteran teacher. I'm going to give a little shout out, Muhammad Abdullah. Rest in peace, sir. But he was there to really help me get through everything. And he would tell me stuff. And at first I'm like, nah, that ain't going to work. That's dumb. Then I would do it his way. I'm like, oh, damn, that worked. And I learned, you know, and that, that's that's what we need. We need people who have experienced both good and bad to show us the way. I mean, that's what it is. It's so much of this work that never gets addressed in your clinicals, you know, your classes. So much of this work you just don't have in your own toolkit when you show up. And so you really do need someone to kind of help you chart your course, help you navigate some very different relationships because they don't always play out in your in reality the way you see them in your mind. You want people who still love this work because they are going to be about the business of bringing you under their wings so that they do have somebody to pass this baton on to who cares about young people in our community as much as they do. So that's what I'm about the business of doing. I I think that's really important. And, you know, and that kind of leads us to our episode for today, kind of looking at what's left out of the discussion and what's left out of what we're talking about. And we've got a a great guest who just wrote an article in The New Yorker called Who's Left Out of the Learning Loss Debate, really looking at it's not so self-evident that this was a net loss on everything. And what is what does loss really mean in this context? And I think it's really important that we get there and we understand what this means for our students and how to fix it going forward. So we're not just going back to the way it was because the way it was, wasn't that great for most of our students. 
It wasn't. I, I, you know, I personally feel like as terrible as the pandemic was and still is in many cases, because we, you know, it's, we're not at the height of it, but we're not out of it either. But what it did do was amplify the inequalities that was just happening in school systems across this country in a way that we had an opportunity to not point blame, right? To say, we have this pandemic, let's fix what's broken. The government threw some money at it so that we can kind of get in there and and repair some things to make a better public school system. And the heartbreak is they still kind of dropped the ball on it. I mean, it's like they had the answers to the test and still failed. I don't know how you do that. Because they want to, like you said, they want to point the finger. They're more concerned about blaming unions, blaming teachers, blaming parents in poor working class communities than they are fixing the problem. And I think this is what our our guest, uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor, said in her article. You know, it's it's so well written and so good at explaining this. I think we should just hear from her. And let's hear it. So we are here with our guest, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. One of the things that, you know, when I've been talking to my friends and everything like this, and these are even well-meaning liberal people, they- They always are. I know, right? I feel like I have to do the air quotes when I say that, right? Um, you know, it, it, it seems somewhat um, intuitive that, you know, kids were out of school for a long time. Um, so there would be some learning loss. What's what's wrong with looking at it in that way? I think that is important. I mean, people have uh, elected officials, well-meaning liberals have uh, looked at the discovery of learning loss, basically meaning that uh, students have fallen behind in these various assessments that are used to test what level um, reading, math they should be at. Um, And so the kind of expression of alarm uh, on the one hand is genuine because there was a big drop off in the latest round of of these tests, some of the lowest uh, scores, you know, compared to, you know, testing prior to the the pandemic. Um, But I do think that the, the shock and alarm really seems to underestimate in many ways the shock and alarm of the pandemic itself. This is one of the most catastrophic events in American history. More Americans have died from COVID-19 than in the Civil War and World War II combined, than gun violence, which we talk uh, exhaustively about and which we should, but that this has been a profound breach in any sense of normalcy. And so the question for me is always, well, why wouldn't there be learning loss given the severity of this crisis? Uh, And really the point is to figure out what we do to use this um, moment to really change public education. Because one of the reasons that Black and brown students, poor and working class students have fallen behind is because they were working at a deficit to begin with. And that deficit was created by the vast 
and pervasive inequality that uh, exists throughout all of public education, where poor and working class students who are disproportionately black and brown have fewer resources and operate at a disadvantage um, most of the time. So it's very fragile as it is. And so then when you have an enormous shock, uh, as the, the, the pandemic has proven to be, then that already existing fragile situation almost completely disintegrates and falls apart. And so the issue is not just how do we recoup learning loss, um, but is how do we build a public education system that reflects the wealth and prosperity of this nation? And that is not just another area that reflects the uh, horrendous inequality that exists in this country. I was always pretty stunned um, at the response of really middle-class white parents throughout this entire endeavor. What struck me is the complete indifference to the experiences of Black families um, and, and really you know, talking about Sweden and Israel and what is going on in Europe. And it's like, what on earth do schools in Europe have to do with public schools in the United States? Or if you consider the response of the Trump administration uh, to COVID uh, when it first emerged as a pandemic, I mean, it was an atrocity and can't be compared to anything that happened anywhere reason why the U.S. has something like 5% of the world's population, but leads the world in COVID deaths, you know? And, and so, one, you can't compare any place else to what happened here. And two, it just seemed to be a completely closed and deaf and blind to what this might be like for Black people for poor and working class Black students who make up the bulk uh, of CPS students, there just seemed to be absolutely no awareness that these are people who exist in the world and whose experience has to be taken seriously. It just seemed incredibly self-absorbed and, and, and selfish, really. Okay, I guess that's where I jump in. And all I could think as I was just listening to you um, now, as a mother and as an educator, as you were looking through this information, how did it strike you through your lens as a Black woman, as an educator, as a mom? Well, I knew personally, you know, from my own child's uh, situation at school, you know, I saw how people were not thinking expansively about the situations of everyone, that mostly people were thinking about their own situation. And so I wanted to really be able to shed light on, you know, the experiences of those who are often excluded or rendered invisible in these debates and, and, and discussions. And I think that that has been a big part of the problem. I think the reason why so-called essential workers have been left in a completely vulnerable position is because these are workers who come from uh, neighborhoods and communities uh, that policymakers don't care about 
Um, and we can measure that just in terms of uh, public investment. We can measure that uh, in terms of conditions that elected officials allow to exist, the degree to which they actually care. I mean, it seemed like in Chicago that the mayor uh, would bend over backwards to try to hear and listen to and accommodate white middle-class parents and to the same degree, ignore the concerns of black and brown parents without taking into consideration that students don't live in a vacuum. They don't learn in a vacuum. They are in buildings with adults who may be vulnerable to having the worst effects of COVID. Adults who then go to their own homes and have people there. And these students go back to their own homes. And who knows what is happening in terms of intergenerational households, in terms of the inability to socially distance. And so these are people who are often excluded from news coverage, um, who people don't see, who are treated as disposable. And so I really wanted to highlight their experiences as something that is missing um, from this debate over learning loss. Thank you for that. I, um, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a veteran Chicago public school teacher. I live on the west side of Chicago. And so for all of those things, as I was reading your article, I just got angrier and angrier because these are the people who are left out that this is impacting the most. And yet their their voices are just on the wind. Like we hear it, but we don't hear it. I was getting so, okay, I'm a refrain from expletives, but I really was getting quite vexed because when we talk about quote unquote essential workers and who got amplified in that space as an essential worker. So you walk past, right? And it's the nurses and the doctors. And yes, they were essential. And it's the firefighters and the cops. And yes, they were essential. But who was talking about the lady that was the clerk at Walmart, who was at work every day and had to leave her babies at home so that she could get to work or maybe leave a sick, you know, parent at home or the lady that's at the clinic, maybe not the fancy hospital. You just at the clinic, right? You're just at these kind of you at the Dollar Tree. I was I was thinking how the Dollar Tree family dollar. None of those stores closed, right? All of the stores that I see in my neighborhood was just open like, OK, just put your mask on. But those people were essential. And those are the folks in our community who died, right? Because they took this, this, this virus back home to their relatives. And somehow or another, there's not a connection between those number of deaths and their being essential and how they got sacrificed in this space, right? We did see people dying elders just dying. I don't even see how uh, we got people just like in New York being loaded into the, the freezer trucks. And then this same ridiculous rhetoric that says that school is the safest place without even ensuring that the minimal safety conditions were adhered to. But you were saying this really, really important piece about how Black boys got left out of all of this discussion around learning loss, right? And I'm always very, I know that as soon as they coin a phrase, it's going to negatively impact Black life as I know it. So if it's learning loss, if it's critical race theory, as soon as they come with come up with something that they could just put their little chomps on and feed it out to their 
So they folks, at the end of this conversation, there's going to be something that negatively impacts Black life as I know it. I want to hear more about what you discovered in your research around who got left out in the conversation. I read a lot of articles because I wanted to make sure that I was being accurate. So I didn't want to say that Black voices are being left out if Black voices were being included. Um, But I found the coverage of the learning loss situation um, to be strange because they all talked about, well, we've gotten these assessments and it appears that there has been uh, significant learning loss among Black and Latino children in fourth grade. And we think this was because uh, schools were closed for too long. We think this was because there was an over-reliance on remote learning. And this was a mistake. I thought that this was a problem in the coverage, that yes, the schools were closed for a long time. They weren't closed too long. They were closed for the length of time it took to develop vaccines and for parents to gain some level of comfort and knowing that they could send their children to school without them dying, or they could send their children to school without them coming home with a deadly disease. So that wasn't too long. That was long enough. I noticed in almost every article, there was no effort to talk to Black families to try and understand from the perspective of Black parents. And that perspective included not just a fear of the virus, although I think that was the predominant one, but the perspective of Black parents that says, even if a school administrator or the head of a school district says it's safe, that there is no basis upon which we should trust you. Why? Because you have lied repeatedly about the conditions of the school. So why would we trust you now? So I live in Philadelphia and the scandal right before COVID shut down the schools in the fall of 2019 was how there were schools in Philadelphia that were infested with disturbed asbestos. So asbestos that had been activated and broken out into the air because schools were doing renovations. Parents had expressed concern about the conditions in some of these schools and they told parents it's safe. We don't want to just shut the building down. So we're going to have class while we redo the building. The school insisted that it was safe. And of course, an investigation led by members of the Philadelphia uh, Teachers Union and others showed that it wasn't safe, that there was asbestos that was in this dust by these renovations. And so that was just the latest. You know, that wasn't the first, you know, breaking news that the superintendent bent the truth about the conditions of the of the schools. So if we can't trust you about this, if we can't trust you when you say, oh, we're going to have air conditioning in all the buildings, which you haven't, we're still closing school because of heat, not enough air conditioning in the summer, not enough heat in the winter, then why would we believe you when you tell us that the schools are safe 
when there is this novel airborne disease that is killing people in the neighborhood. If you don't understand that, if you don't understand the fear, the suspicion, and to be honest, the rightfully earned cynicism that Black parents have about the school district leaders, about the administrative layer within the schools, then you can't understand why Black parents were so reluctant to just send their kids back to school on the word of uh, uh, the school administrators that it was safe. If you don't include voices and experiences of Black and Brown parents into this discussion, then you can't actually have a full understanding of what happened, why it happened, and what needs to change if something else cataclysmic happens to public education. Every time we even want to talk about learning loss, we're talking about it or it's talked about based on assessment. Not that children lost in any other place, right? It's not talking about their mental health, physical health, their depression. It's not talking about their bereavement. It's talking about learning loss and assessment. So I can't help but think about the people who benefit from overassessing our children and the organizations usually charter connected to what we're saying. So, so based on your research and experience, how connected do you think this argument of learning loss? Because where did the learning go? Like, is it just (laughs) (laughs) we lost it? We gotta go find it. We just lost it and we gotta find it, right? Where do you see there may be a relationship between this term learning loss and what the charter school industry? the charter school complex may do with it? There are two responses. One is definitely been from the right. And, you know, and I quoted Ron DeSantis, um, the governor of Florida, in the article. And it's clear that his intention and a whole number of Republican officials is to use this as a way to further undermine public education and right now, that means really promoting this idea of vouchers paid for by public dollars uh, to send kids to, to private schools. Uh, Michael Bloomberg had an op-ed recently that talked about the U.S. government uh, helping uh, through financing charter schools as a way to recoup learning loss. I think for many on the right, this has become another a uh, way to undermine public schools. But I don't think it's just about the right. It's not just about the Republicans. Um, it's also, you know, the, the Democratic Party has laid much of the foundation for the retreat away from uh, public education through the leaderships of the, of the party's embrace of charter schools, which has helped to weaken public schools. I think that the leadership in the Democratic Party has either actively participated in or stood by passively as liberal and conservative critics alike have attacked teachers unions, the last frontier defending the institution of public education. And as I wrote in the article, the various strikes prompted by different issues in different localities have all kind of mapped out a way to not just recoup learning loss, but to actually rebuild uh, public schools, which is greater investment, tax the rich, small classrooms, pay paraprofessionals more than a living wage, pay them 
as co-educators in buildings. All of these are the roadmap to rebuilding public schools. But what it comes down to, I think, for both parties is they all like to point out the problems. They all like to point out the deficits. And yet no one wants to pay what is necessary to fix the problems in public education. We are literally spending money as a country to figure out how to destroy an asteroid that may hit Earth a thousand years from now, and we can't invest in public schools. And even when they do, so Biden signed a a number of bills that adds up to something like $190 billion to go to public schools. Great. However, up to 20% of that can be used to deal specifically with issues around learning loss and reading and math. And it has to be spent by 2024 where the money is forfeited. This is not a serious approach to what they all claim is an existential crisis in public education, which just means that this is mostly about politics and money. And it's not actually about COVID-19. For those people, whether it's Lori Lightfoot, the Democratic Party, whether it's the right and the Republican Party, they don't want to pay for the problems that have been identified usually by teachers in the system of public education. What they want to do is use it as, you know, a political football that for some then ends up becoming a map out of public education, out of public schools. And I think this also points to why we don't talk about the numbers of people killed by this disease. And we know a million people is an undercount. More than 200,000 people have died since January, right? So hundreds of thousands of people continue to die, but we don't talk about it. And our governing institutions don't want us to talk about it because to talk about it would mean we must do something about it. And they have already decided that it's time to move on. They're wondering, why can't we get people to get boosters? We only got 5% of people getting boosters. Well, because the president of the United States just said the pandemic was over. (laughs) What the fuck do you need a booster for? It's over. I mean, it makes no sense. Yep. Mission accomplished, right? It seems both sides of our political establishment have given up entirely on the concept of a public good and what is needed to accomplish that. I mean, the students we're talking about that have been most impacted by this already come from communities that have violence. And then you add in the violence of COVID. Ultimately, if people are being injured and killed and dying in a community, it almost doesn't matter why. That's a violence in that community. And then we add on the violence of educational apartheid, which is affecting these communities as well. And then we expect these kids just, oh, I'm going to take a test and we're all good now. Like that wouldn't even make sense. Like in any sense of the word, it makes no sense that this could be a successful way of doing it. And like Tara said, they're going to use this idea that kids have, quote, lost, you know, achievement in this or that to push some other kind of educational deforming agenda on to public schools to try to privatize the schools because obviously we're failing, 
right? We're failing the kids when it's really the political establishment that's been failing the kids for decades, centuries, and they don't want to do anything to to stop that or stem the tie because it's going to cost too much damn money that's going to be, have to be put into a community that they just don't give a damn about. And that's the bottom line in the U.S. They have turned all of this into some big quandary and question that no one can figure out. Why is there gun violence? Why are all these things happening when we know why? Like underfund and deform the public schools, you, you know, create an economy where there are no real jobs, no sustainable jobs. You give like 70% of black men of working age on the West side of Chicago, a criminal record, like people have to survive. And so because you have made survival something that is very difficult, you've created a system that promotes violence as a way for people to survive. And so the solution then is to flood communities with resources, with wealth, with the things that are, are needed, housing, health care, mental health care, solidarity. 68% of Black people suffer from loneliness, loneliness, a feeling of disconnection from people and places around you. We can identify what the problems are and we can identify how you fix them. The same way that these people who complain that, oh, this isn't about money, we don't need resources, but then we'll pay $50,000 a year to send their kid to the lab school, right? They know that money and resources make a huge difference. And so that's the solution. This is not rocket science. This is not hard. We know what the solutions are, but those who hold the purse strings don't want to pay. They get away with not paying by treating our neighborhoods and our people like they are disposable garbage and like they don't matter and that it's our fault in the first place. And that that's what matter. is really going on here. Yes. Which is why a movement called Black Lives Matter could have such resonance in the first place, because it's that simple. We are treated like we don't matter. I could just so feel that. And I was blown away by a line in your article that said there was no correlation between education and the and the resources or the money. Or, And I'm like, lie. I mean, people, <laughs> let's just, just lie, lie, right? Just it like, never applies people, to them. Right? The lab school is not free. Yep. But not only that, we know for a fact that people move into certain communities based on the schools that's in that community, right? So they're moving into other places because of the education system. So it's just so, again, lie, disrespectful to say there's no correlation when we know damn well that it is. But again, because Black life, since we arrived to these shores and this yet to be United States of America, has ceased to matter unless a profit can be made, enter charter schools and the prison industrial complex. So mm. when we can make money off the suffering of Black life, then it's relevant. And my concern is like, how do you begin to connect these dots to the people, families, communities that have some voice and agency and how all of this plays out? 
you know, to me, one of the most important parts about this article and that I'm glad is is being circulated is the part about unions and particularly teachers unions and the Chicago teachers union that has really tried to pursue this model of social justice unionism, which is essentially to say that it's not just about the bread and butter issues of pay and benefits, although that is incredibly important, but the way that you build a community-wide struggle so that politicians can't weasel out and try to pit parents against teachers is to basically see the school as a social institution. And so I think the CTU's contract campaign in 2019 was a model of this in terms of arguing for a nurse and social worker in every building, but also bargaining over the rights of homeless students, forcing the the school administration to provide services specifically related to housing for homeless students. And that is about using your social leverage as teachers, as an organized workforce for the greater good. If there are any, there aren't many homeless teachers. So that wasn't about a benefit for teachers. That wasn't about a benefit for just, you know, a member of the the, the CTU. That was about looking at what the community needs. And that's how you develop the bonds of solidarity. That's how you create an atmosphere where teachers cannot be pitted against parents. And you build a united front that city administrators and school administrators must take notice of and must heed. That is a model that needs to be replicated everywhere because sometimes if we get overly fixated on community organizing, the difference between connecting that with the organized force of teachers as a source of labor is that you don't get the leverage that teachers have. Teachers have leverage as workers in buildings. And being able to connect that leverage to a greater struggle to transform a neighborhood or community is much stronger than that which can be built by community organizing unto itself. So this is about how do we bring the power and leverage of the working class, of the laboring class, of workers, teachers, into solidarity and unity uh, with communities that are fighting around housing, food insecurity, for living wages. We have to connect these community struggles to the power of the working class, to the power of labor. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, during the pandemic, you know, billionaires and millionaires got richer. I mean, their their share of the wealth that was already astronomical, I mean, got astronomicaler, if that's a word. And I mean, and, and the, the one good thing they did, which was all these relief payments to, that reduced child poverty, but what did they say, 50, 60%? Now they're like, oh no, we can't do that shit anymore because it accidentally worked. They did it for six months. Oh my and God. Then they let it expire. It really shows how little imagination it even takes to fix the problem because it's right there. It's right there in, in front of us. You know, this is so crazy that we know what to do. We've done it. 
And we saw that it worked. We can't even claim, oh, that might not work because we just saw it work. It totally worked, right? And I don't know. That's that's why I love this article. I was saying before we started that I had a hard time articulating to some of my friends that would talk about learning loss, you know, how to really explain it to them. And now I can just forward in the, the link to this article and be like, read her article because I, I don't got anything better to say than that. And and that's that. And I can't tell you how much I really appreciate you being on the show today and explaining all this to our listeners. And I really hope that our listeners go to the article. We're going to include that in the show notes, the link to the article, um, and really read into this because it's one of those things when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, that's so obvious. How did I not think of that? You know. And I just really appreciate you and your article and all the work you're doing in this area. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, uh, you know, constantly inspired by the CTU. So really glad that the article resonated with folks. Thanks for having me on. Listen, thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of CTU Speaks with our guest, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Tara, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's been great. And, you know, CTU Speaks is getting so popular and so big and so global that we need another co-host. That's how big we are. It's like millions of listeners we have now. We're just, we're barely below Facebook's amount of members, I think, just slightly below. And we need to bump that up. We do. We need to bump it up. We need to beat all these platforms. So you can definitely, you know, subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. We're like everywhere. Look around a corner. We're there. Everywhere. Don't worry about it. And and uh, Tara, how can they how can they contact us if they want to contact us? They can contact us at CTU Speaks at ctulocal1.org. Again, that's CTU Speaks at ctulocal1.org. Three one two. Call in, send an email to us. Let us know some ideas for your favorite show. Uh, Let us know that, you know, you think Tara ought to be on the show instead of me, whatever it is. You know, let us know so you can be part of this group because we're really here for you guys. And as Ms. Parker always says, we are CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. Thanks. Peace.